Hello and welcome. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode, I spoke with Professor Sam Gosling, a personality researcher from UT Austin. To start with, we should first ask ourselves, what is personality? There are endless theories and frameworks that try to describe, explain, and predict a person's characteristic nature, as well as many different approaches to studying and measuring an individual's personality. In this episode, Sam gave us his take on what personality actually means and explained the different levels of analysis that we should pay attention to when venturing into this field. Throughout his career, Sam has studied how our personalities are reflected in the physical spaces that we inhabit. What do our rooms, offices, and homes say about who we are? How can we learn about someone's personality just by observing their room or office, for instance? We spoke about all of the different clues we should look for when observing someone's space, as well as which personality traits are most easily detectable. Sam's fascination with physical spaces doesn't stop there, however. Recently, he's focused on the question of how can architecture affect our psychology? How can the layout and design of a physical space influence our moods, cognitions, and behavior? What kinds of rooms promote inspiration and creativity on the one hand, or rest and rejuvenation on the other? Our physical environments can have a profound impact on our psychological states, but to this day, little research is focused on systematically asking and answering these questions. We explored how architects can use psychology research to design spaces that take these psychological effects into account, and how... Hopefully, one day, this can mean an evolution in the entire field of architecture itself. So if you'd like to know how our personalities can shape the spaces we inhabit, as well as how these same spaces can affect us, stay tuned for today's episode. Well, among other things, we're going to talk about this thing called personality today. But before we can do that, I'd like to know... How do you define personality? As a personality researcher, what does personality mean to you? Well, there's a lot of different ways of describing personality, and people have tried very hard. Essentially, you can think about it as how the field has defined it. Now, the field has a very limited uh, way of characterizing personality. Really, the field equates personality to personality traits. And so what do we mean by traits? These are kinds of consistencies in the ways people think, feel, and behave. So we have lots of terms to to say somebody's nervous or calm or gregarious or curious. Those sorts of things are personality traits. And virtually all of research on personality in recent years has focused on personality traits, so much so that, in fact, you could almost equate personality with personality traits. But I would say we shouldn't do that because, in fact, personality is so much more. And one of the people who I think has made the most powerful arguments against this is uh, Dan McAdams, who said you can think of traits 
as really as the psychology of the stranger. It's sort of a very useful kind of first read on somebody. But if you just knew somebody's, their basic traits, that wouldn't really be enough to say that you really know that person. I mean, if I gave you a personality profile just in terms of traits of somebody, would you want to, that be enough for you to marry them? Probably not, right? Because you don't really know who they are. And so McAdam says, in order to get to know somebody more deeply, you need to go a bit deeper and for things that are more contextualized. So these would be things like people's attitudes, their goals, their values, the things of who it is they want to be, what's important to them. That's the sort of the second level. And then you can go even more deeply to the third level of identity, which is kind of this narrative sense of who you are, how you became the person you are today, and how you sort of tie all these events from your past together to give you this sense of who you are, which also feeds into the ideas of who you're going to be and what you're going to do. Now, the problem with those other two levels, the non-trade levels, is they're much harder to measure. Right. And so that's why, essentially, the field of personality is the field of traits, and to the detriment of the field, I think. Right. It stays in that kind of surface level descriptions of certain behaviors, but really you're not getting into the roots of what is somebody's motivations? What are their opinions? What are the inner workings that are specific to that person? Like why is somebody that way? Right. So in some of your earlier research, you explored how personality can manifest even in different animals. Mm -hmm. So what from your work with animals did you find about the different expressions of temperament and personality that they show? Yeah, so well, with animals, in that case, I think it probably does make more sense to equate uh, personality with traits, it's at least non- non-human do. animals. It's all we can do. And, and it's harder to really understand what it would be for a non-human animal to have a sense of self and identity. You know, they may be able to recognize themselves and pass those various sorts of tests for self-recognition, but to have this kind of narrative, coherent sense of who they are and how that relates to the things around them and their past events and their future and so on is probably harder to imagine. So in non-human animals, I think it does make more sense to look at these sorts of behavioral tendencies. And, you know, and that's what we mean when we say, you know, an individual is calm, whether that's a human individual or a, or a dog or a hyena or whatever it is, what we tend to mean is that individual will tend to be relatively calm across time and across situations. Now, of course, those things will change across situations like they do for everyone. So take the example of talkativeness. So sure, everybody's less talkative at the library than they are at a party, But still, at both the library and the party, the extrovert is more talkative than the introvert. So it doesn't mean you don't have personality because your behavior changes across situation. The point is you are still more talkative or more calm or whatever it is relative relative to other people. And so that's the crucial point. And it's also, it's crucial that it extends over time, right? So anyone might be talkative for a few moments, for some circumstantial reason. That's not personality either. And so those are the sorts of things we were looking at in non-human animals. And at the time I was studying it, I really didn't have a position on whether animals had personality. In fact, to be honest, I came to it from the perspective that they probably didn't because I was 
it came from an experience in my first year of graduate school when I was just trying to understand, well, what is personality? And then sort of employing the kind of, you know, the philosophical reductio ad absurdum, thinking, okay, well, let's think of a, a case that clearly doesn't have personality. And I say, well, obviously, animals don't have personality hmm. and humans do. So maybe if we could think, well, what is it that differentiates humans from non-human animals, we can f- learn more about what personality is. But then, of course, as soon as I began to think about it, I couldn't come up with any good reason why animals didn't have personality. So I began to try to think, well, okay, does it make sense to talk about animals having personality? And then I thought, well, why wouldn't it? And then the sort of second phase of the research was, okay, well, then how do we measure personality in animals? And then the third phase of the research was, okay, well, how can we use that? What can we do with it? But I should say, you know, when I first started doing it, it was quite hard to get that research going because many people thought it wasn't worth doing, and, but it was for two completely opposite reasons. So, okay. so anybody who knew animals, who had multiple animals or grew up on a farm where there were animals, they thought, when I said, okay, my big point is animals have personality, they're thinking, well, of course they have personality. Well, who? Why would you even bother studying that? <laughs> and then at the same time, there were people coming from sort of the anthropology kind of area and, and many people in psychology too who thought that any ascriptions of personality to non-human animals was merely anthropomorphism. It was just projecting, inappropriately projecting human qualities onto non-human animals and should not be done. It would be irresponsible to do so. You know, and they had good reason to because, you know, there had been many cases in the past of people loosely ascribing human characteristics to non-human animals. So there was a reason to be cautious. Such as? What are these? Well, you know, there was these famous cases of, you know, Romanus, a a contemporary of Darwin's, talking Mm -hmm. about the stories of the ants having a funeral and and all those sorts of things. And certainly anthropomorphism does happen. So, for example, when I first started studying personality in animals, there weren't any instruments designed to measure personality in animals. So we kind of used a human instrument. We just took a human big five personality trait measure, which had all kinds of things that can be ascribed, reasonably ascribed to dogs, you would think. Things like, you know, is it energetic? Is it calm? Is it highly strong? Is it curious? So things that don't require much of a stretch of the imagination. But then there were also sometimes, because it was an instrument designed for humans, that made less sense. So one of the terms on there was philosophical. So people had to rate their dogs on how philosophical it was. <laughs> and I wondered what would happen. Would people put a question mark on the survey? Would they kind of call me over and say, hey, how do I answer this? Or this makes no sense. You know, right. you know what would they do? Because, you know, I think, you know, dogs can be, I don't think they can be philosophical in the way humans can. I think they can, you know, look as though they're philosophical or right, something like that. Right, looking up at the sky yeah, or something. Yeah, exactly. But it's not the same. And so, yeah, I wonder what they do. But what did they do? They just perfectly, happily rated their dogs on philosophical, all 300 people in the study. without projecting? Without, without, I think they just, yeah, I think, yeah, somewhat projecting and imagining and thinking maybe it was kind of philosophical or something. So I think... Anthropomorphism in terms of, you know, personality in animals clearly does happen. So the question is, what do you do? And I don't think what you do is kind of just shrug your shoulders and walk away. It just means you've got to go carefully. You've right. got to, you know, you've got to say, okay, 
well, do you get the same sorts of results when you do a study that doesn't rely on humans rating animals, but relies on, say, behavioral measures of their activity? Right. And did you find anything in terms of reactivity, for instance, animals that were more stressed? Essentially, we we found, and this is based on research across a lot of different animals and a lot of different species and using multiple methods. And essentially, across virtually all species, you find something that's akin to what in humans is kind of extroversion. Okay. And something akin to what in humans is, the thing you're talking about, neuroticism or anxiety or something like that. Okay, so can you explain that? And I think that makes sense because to be a successful kind of locomoting kind of creature in the world, you need to be sensitive to the opportunities, whether it's mating or food or habitat or whatever it is. And you also need to be sensitive to the dangers, what can go wrong. Those are important things to be able to do. And so I think they're pretty fundamental aspects of behavior and virtually any animal needs to have those sorts of things. So those have pretty good analogs in humans and most other animals. So something that in humans would be called extroversion. In humans, it would have things like talkativeness as well and so on. But it's, you know, in humans, the extroversion... It just has different expressions, really. Yeah, an introverted human behaves very differently. The actual behaviors are different from an introverted squid, say, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's essentially maybe serving much of the same function. Right, you right. Know. So, you know, an extroverted human will be withdraw parties, an extroverted squid will be hesitant to join others or cover itself with ink or whatever it is that a squid does. I, I don't really know. Interesting. And then, and then there are other dimensions too. So the other thing that's often important in animals is some form of what in humans would be agreeableness, but in animals might be defined by the other end of aggression. So they okay. differ in terms of their aggression. You know, this was one of kind of the early studies that got me interested in the animal field. You know, in, even in fruit flies, mm-hmm. you'll see in consistent individual differences in the tendency of individual fruit flies to get into fights. So, you know, they get into these kind of boxing matches where they whack each other with their legs and their wings. (laughs) And some of those are more likely, you know, they will be aggressive across time and across situation. The bully fruit flies. Yeah, exactly. And to me, it's very useful because I could describe, I said, hey, there's two individuals, one of which, you know, is constantly getting into fights. Should we describe that as aggressive? And most people would say yes. And then I say, oh, by the way, they're fruit flies. And people go, I'm not so sure. But we shouldn't discriminate against them just because if it's exhibiting behavior that in humans would be called personality, then I think it makes sense to do so. I think when you look at personality as basically these consistent, systematic differences between people, right? It's the variability Mm -hmm. that we find between people. So. Of course, there's also variability within different species. Mm -hmm. So obviously we should find personality. And the fact that these personality traits kind of mirror each other in the behaviors Mm -hmm. of different species also gives them a bit more weight. It makes sense. I mean, it would just be very, very odd for evolution to suddenly invent personality when we diverged from our closest relatives. Right. And my, and my next question. Highly point, unlikely. Exactly. So my next question was, 
What do you think the evolutionary role of personality is? And why aren't we all the same? And why aren't we all optimized to a perfect personality, for instance? Yeah. And that's an excellent question. And it's an incredibly (laughs) complicated question. Because you're right, in a sense, right, evolution should reduce the variation. We should all have the optimal, you know, like giraffes all have long necks because that's good. So it might be, I mean, I think there are a number of answers. It might be that the variation that remains is just error within that variant. So, you know, even though giraffes all have longer necks now than they did 10,000 years ago, because it's adapted to have longer necks and shorter necks, there is still some variation within giraffes about their neck length, which is determined by many environmental, genetic, and other factors. So one answer is it might just be, well, this is the variation that's left over in this important survival-related dimension. But there are other answers too. So another possibility is that you have some kind of uh, frequency-dependent or balancing selection, such that the adaptiveness of one trait is changes dependent on its frequency in the population. So that extroversion may be generally good, but when there's too many extroverts, introversion becomes more valuable for various reasons, which we could talk about. And so then the value of being introverted becomes more adaptive and there becomes more introverts in the population. So that's another answer. Another answer is there's some evidence that sort of different personality types prosper in different contexts. So so there's this great examples by this research group that's been going for years in the Netherlands, including work work by Kees van Oers and others, where looking at uh, blue tits, I think they are. And they find that essentially there's these two personality types, what they call fast explorers and slow explorers, which is essentially they take the birds and they see how quickly it explores and experimentals. Some of them go all all around the, the space very quickly. Others take a long time to explore it. And what they find is that different approaches are adaptive depending on the harshness of the winter. I can't remember which way around it is, but one of them do well in harsh winters and one of them do well in mild winters. So in a sort of fluctuating environment, you could see how both the variation in this trait might come about. You know, we had the same sort of thing in, there's examples of boldness in fishes. So in certain fishes that are subject to aerial predation, it's if you are in a part of the river where there's lots of trees over above and so you can't really be attacked and eaten by birds, mm-hmm. then it's good to be bold and go out because you will find the food and the mates and the whatever it is you want, need as a fish. Whereas if you are in an open part of the river where you do get eaten by birds from above, then it's better to be shy and to be very cautious. You know, and we have the same thing, I think, if you bring it back to humans. You think, well, we wonder, why do you have so many people who are high on the personality scale known as neuroticism? They're anxious and they're worrying th- about things all the time. And it seems to be rather, well, it's painful for the individuals often, but it often seems to be maladapted because they're just right. worrying about things that aren't there. And you say, well, it, it does seem maladaptive, yes, when you're living in a safe environment. But then if you move to another context where there are real dangers being low on neuroticism is maladaptive because you're not worrying about dangers that you should. Right. 
I read about this one study that they actually looked at chimpanzees and there was always that one depressed, highly neurotic chimpanzee and they wanted to see what would happen if they took that chimpanzee out of the group. And they had all these different theories. Maybe the group will become depressed because we took that one chimp out. And what happened is that the group died because he was kind of their failsafe almost. He was their he would ring the alarm, really. And that just shows that we do need people, that there is an adaptiveness to all of these different extremes yeah. of different traits. Now, a lot of the work that you've done focused on physical spaces and how we leave behavioral residue mm-hmm. in the spaces we inhabit, such as our rooms, offices, mm-hmm. or homes. And by examining these different spaces, we can learn a lot about people's personalities. So can you tell us about how this research even began? Yeah, the research began when I was, again, in in graduate school. And I was frustrated by the fact that psychology calls itself uh, behavioral science. (laughs) But they don't really measure behavior, at least not natural, ordinary, everyday behavior. It spends its time looking at reports of behavior, what people say they do, or contrived laboratory recreations of behavior that may or may not, probably not, reflect the real world situations, or people talking about what they would do if this happened, like vignettes. And so I thought, wouldn't it be good if we could somehow study behavior? And I thought, well, maybe one way to study real world behavior, because it's very difficult to actually study behavior as it happens in ordinary life, because you get if you follow somebody around with a video camera, as my former advisor, Ken Craig, did, you know, of course, that is incredibly time-consuming, cumbersome, and interferes with the behavior. I mean, it's not viable. So I thought, well, maybe we can begin to find sort of residues of people's behavior. So just as, you know, Sherlock Holmes is looking for residues of criminal behaviors or behaviors to try to learn about the criminal actions and other actions of the person that he is seeking, maybe we all leave residues in our wake. So, you know, if you go to a place that has a bunch of parking tickets strewn across the floor, well, they got there somehow, you know, and there's a, <laughs> and there is a, there's a trail a chain yeah. of actions yeah. that leads somebody to have a bunch of parking tickets strewn across the floor and somebody else who doesn't. So can we reason back from the residue to the behavior and therefore learn about the personality? So that was where it was coming. And I thought, okay. And so I initially, I was just interested in that link through behavior. But then as soon as I started looking in these spaces, I began to realize how psychologically rich they are. And there are many more connections between individuals and the spaces in which they live and work than just behavioral residue. Right. And what kind of traits did you find that you were able to reliably track through observing someone's office, for instance? Yeah. So we did some studies where what we did was we just sent people into people's spaces, where it's their living space or their office spaces. And we said, what do you think this person's like? We had no idea if people would be able to guess it, you know, and of course we covered up the photos of the people so you couldn't see what they looked like. And we covered up their names uh, for confidentiality reasons. And then we gave these people a personality questionnaire. And we also asked 
multiple other people who know them to tell us what they're like. So we can compare the personality guesses by people who have only seen your physical space with those by the occupant themselves and two or more people who know the occupant well. And the idea is, you know, do those reports converge? And they do converge for some personality traits and not others. So the one that most people think will be accurately judged, and it was, was conscientiousness, which is, you know, how kind of organized and reliable and tidy is somebody. So you could tidy somebody. So you can easily see how that would manifest in space. Is the place clean and tidy and organized? Do they have spare supplies? You know, those sorts of things. Yeah, you can't hide that. No, it's it's very hard. Yeah. I mean, in fact, a lot of people, when they hear about this research, think, well, oh, you could just hide it and tidy it up. But you you really can't. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. a truly messy person. You know, where where do they even begin? Right. Absolutely. And yeah, because that messy person wouldn't even see things that the truly tidy person has. You know, like my office is pretty messy and chaotic. And, uh, my colleague's office next door is not at all. It's immaculate. And if I, while she was gone, went in and took one of the many sharpened pencils and sort of turned it upside down, she would come in and notice it straight away. Whereas you could go into my office and turn all the books on their sides, and I wouldn't notice until somebody said, why are the books on their sides? So it's very difficult to kind of fake those differences in perception. Right. I think that goes to the core of what makes personality so interesting, mm-hmm. because Yes, we have different behaviors, but at the end of the day, we literally see the world in a completely different way. There's in the field of everything that's happening around us, there's certain things that become more salient to us based on our personalities. Absolutely. I think that's, that's a really important point. And I think, you know, going back to, for example, the trait of neuroticism, it's like you can have two people walking down the street next to each other and they will have a completely different experience because one is going to be noticing the loud noises and the slamming car doors and so on and and vigilant and onto those things. And the other person isn't. So on the outside, it looks the same, but on the inside, they're living in different, entirely different worlds. And I think you're absolutely right. Spaces are very good places for looking at that for a number of reasons. One, because you pick up these differences that are just in how the person views the world. And also because it tends to be the accumulation of stuff over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And that begins to get manifested in these spaces. And we are sensitive to that. I didn't know if we would. You know, it's quite possible that people with different personalities would have different spaces, but observers wouldn't be able to pick that up. Right. But the trait they were really accurate at judging was a trait known as openness to experience, which is our people kind of broad-minded and philosophical and abstract uh, and curious versus people at the other end of that who tend to be more concrete and more traditional, more conventional. And that dimension also showed up, in fact, more strongly than conscientiousness. People were very good at judging that. that and what kind of things do you find in someone who's high in openness and someone who's low in openness? Yeah, so the people who are high in openness, if you think about, well, what is the kind of essential psychological difference? And, and the difference here is sort of like an interest in difference and the unknown. You know, somebody high on openness will go to a restaurant and they will look at the menu and they'll say, I don't know what that item is. I'll have it. (laughs) Whereas, you know, somebody low on openness will say, well, I know what I like and I like what I know and I like the spaghetti. So I'll have the spaghetti again because there for somebody low on openness, uncertainty and difference is disconcerting that they get more reassurance from predictability and so on. 
And that shows up in these places. So essentially, people, law and openers, have very conventional spaces, both in terms of the way it's arranged, in terms of the sort of the art on the walls, the decor. They tend to have more conventional things like sporting decor, uh, mm-hmm. interest in things that are already known. So both people high on openness and low on openness will have things like flags sometimes, if you look at the flags. But the flags will be different. The people low on openness will tend to have flags of their own country or their own state or something they know, whereas people high on openness will tend to have things like flags of other countries. And, and Interesting. So the biggest really clue to openness is, is it unconventional? You go in to a place and you think, whoa, I've never seen that before. That's an interesting thing to do with a you know, a vase or whatever it is. And you think, ah, <laughs> what is that? If you get that sense, they're probably high on openness. And then there are other things. You know, as I said, people high on openness are interested in the arts. They're philosophical and so on. So do you see original art on the walls? Do you see books on poetry, philosophy, and so on in the bookshelves? And they like diversity. So they, like, they have a diversity of music, a diversity of books, a diversity of magazines, and so on. Interesting. And is neuroticism, for instance, something that you can pick up on? Neuroticism is a very interesting example because it's something that people were able to detect, but we weren't really able to find any good clues as to what it is they're picking up on. Now, we have interesting one idea that, you know, for various reasons, that there are well-documented sex differences in some of the traits. Most notable of them is neuroticism. So on average, women are higher on neuroticism than men are. Okay. So I think one of the things that the judges may be doing is they are going into the spaces. And when you're in the types of rooms we were looking at, which were mainly dorms and so on, you could quickly tell whether you're in a male or a female's room. Right, right. And then say, okay, I'm going to make my judgment of the space but those are going to also be informed by my stereotypes about differences between men and women. It turns out that some of those stereotypes have a kernel of truth to them. So the stereotype that women are more anxious than men tends to be true. So if you do raise your guess of whether the occupant is neurotic purely because you think they're female, that will actually help your accuracy because that has some validity to it. But there's some stereotypes that aren't. So, for example, there's another stereotype that women are more agreeable, they're more sympathetic, warm, trusting, trustworthy than men. And in our sample, there were no differences between men and women in agreeableness. They were exactly the same. So there, that stereotype hurts you because you imagine that there's a difference and that informs your ratings that isn't actually there. But really in terms of things that you found within the space, agreeableness and neuroticism were things that were more difficult. They were more difficult. I don't know if, again, this is just me wildly speculating. There was one thing that did come up in office spaces about that was a predictor of neuroticism. Now, I would want to do more research before making it, but it's just, it's intriguing. And that was that, that people hiring neuroticism tended to have more kind of inspirational quotes and things Interesting, around. interesting. Yeah, yeah, you needed a pick-me-up Yeah, pick-me-up. It's kind of like, yeah, kind of like an environmental kind of, you know, okay, you can do this, kind of, <laughs> you know, that using the environment. And I think, you know, that really gets at some of the interesting psychology linking 
individuals to their spaces is that people are using their spaces to regulate themselves all the time and in such a pervasive yet natural way that they don't even know they're doing it. Right. Can you tell us about this thing called social snacks? Yeah. There's this term called social snacks. And essentially, that is the idea that most of your listeners probably have a photo on their phone or on the back of their laptop, on the screensaver on the laptop or up around. And this is the and that's probably of a loved one or a favorite person or a favorite place or something like that. So and the idea here is just as you're hungry for food, you might have some snacks around that you might also be kind of missing your child. And you're missing your child and you can look around and say, oh, there's a photo of my child on my phone or on the photo next to the thing. So in a, in a way, that is a great example of how people use their spaces to regulate their emotions in ways they're probably not realizing they're doing. And it also shows how the very same object in a space can serve different functions. So if I have a photo of me with my kids by my computer facing me, then it's probably a social snack. It's for me to try to regulate my own emotions. Whereas you take the very same photo and turn it around 180 degrees so it's facing the people who come to meet me in my office, then the function is different. It's about making a claim about their identity, about telling others, this is who I am. So, you know, I think going around these spaces, you learn, you know, it's not only what people have and the condition they're in, it's their orientation and location is critical in trying to understand the psychological function that these items serve within people's spaces. Right. All of these factors are playing together. You guys thought at all about incorporating AI or machine learning in terms of analyzing these different photos of the spaces? Of course, because AI is going to be much better at picking up patterns that we can't. The issue, of course, is getting a sufficiently large sample. Dataset, yes. Yeah, which I don't yet have, but you know, I would love that to happen. I'm sure that you could get lots and lots of photos of people's spaces. The challenge would then be getting the other information to relate it right, to. But right. that sounds like a very reasonable thing to do. I mean, it's probably, yeah, it sounds viable to me. Yeah. So from this focus on physical spaces, you've recently begun to explore the larger question of not only how our personality affects the spaces around us, but how do the physical spaces we inhabit affect us and our psychology? So you found that there are certain ambiances that people are looking for in their homes and that people want a different ambiance in their kitchen than say their bedroom. So what are these larger categories of ambiances and how can they better inform modern architecture today? Well, we're just really developing our understanding of what sort of the broader ambiance dimensions are. And I think it goes back to this idea that people are seeking out certain things in spaces, even when they realize, don't realize they're doing it. And a lot of this research that we've been doing on ambiances stems from a work by a visionary architect called Christopher Travis, who I was learning about his work. Now, he, I'm a big promoter of saying we should do introduce more psychology into architecture because I think it's, it's incredibly important in terms of that architecture is designed to help us flourish professionally and personally and, and spiritually in whatever other way. I think it can play a huge role in that. 
And I think that involves two parts. One is integrating sort of psychological ideas into architecture. And then the other is essentially integrating the scientific method into architecture. Because there's lots of architects who will tell you they are integrating psychology. But then when you look what they're doing, they say they're doing research, but it is nothing <laughs> that any researcher would recognize as research. You know, they're, you know, they're having interesting thoughts about it and talking to people about it, but it's not what I would recognize as research. And Christopher Travis, he's not a researcher, so he's not doing the second thing I talked about, but he, more than anyone else I know, really is integrating psychology into his practice. And so he puts psychology front and center. And he was the one who started to ask his clients, okay, so what kind of a feeling do you want to have in the family room or in the kitchen or in the bedroom or something like that? And as you would expect, you get certain types of ambiances crop up again and again and again. So in the bedroom, people want to have a sense of romance, a sense of relaxation, a sense of rejuvenation. There's a certain set of ambiances that people want in that space that they don't want to say the garage. Most people, when you say, what do you want in the garage? They don't say romance and relaxation. <laughs> they say organization and productivity or something like that. Right. And so a lot of the work we have been doing is just trying to get a sort of basic taxonomy of what ambiances people seek to have. Because it's only once we have this taxonomy that architects will be able to integrate that information into their work and make sure that they ask their clients the right questions. I think the role, you know, architects are still incredibly important in being able to kind of implement the procedures to get the physical space in a way that meets these psychological needs. But there needs to be a much stronger emphasis from those in architecture and design professions on putting an understanding that the psychological function does a place feel safe? Do you feel loved? Do you feel provided for? That those things are also important along with, you know, are you dry? Are you warm? Are you, you know, physically secure? Absolutely. And I think architecture today is kind of um, in a bit of an identity crisis. So it would, uh, it would help out a lot to explore this different avenue of trying to inform how we build our buildings with actual psychology and with what people are actually looking for. Well, buildings are incredibly important. They are incredibly important for how our well-being, our physical and mental well-being, our productivity, creativity, relationships, they play a huge role in all of those things. And I think I love architects. I love architecture. And, you know, <laughs> I think, you know, architects are also would support those, but their training, they have the comes from the artistic background. Architects do not typically have any classes in psychology or any classes in science. They have a class in studios. It's taught as a studio art. It has that <laughs> tradition. And if you think of other professional schools like law or medicine or dentistry or whatever, they also have a very big research division, which is engaging in research in the medicals. Like, what type of device do we need to help somebody move their arm better or whatever it is? I don't know what, it, but they have. It seems nuts to me that we don't also have the same thing 
in an architecture school where like half the school is devoted to thinking, okay, how can we make somebody have a sense of security or safety or whatever, or whatever it is? You know, I love art and I love big art, monumental art, <laughs> but I think that architecture and buildings are way too important to be purely in the hands of artists. We don't let artists run the power grid or the police <laughs> or the police force or build bridges because it's really important. And so I also think that is true of designing buildings. I mean, sure, I think the artistic side can make a good contribution to it, but to me it's absolutely bananas that they're just kind of making it up. Right. I mean, they're not doing research. They don't know. You know, if I was to say to an architect, okay, what things have you done in this space to help people sleep better? And how do you know that? They would say, well, they would go on their intuition. But we know a lot about sleep. Psychologists know a lot about sleep. Why shouldn't they be collaborating with the architects? If we could just make 10% of the people sleep 10% better, we'd solve so many problems. <laughs> you'd solve relationship problems. You'd solve work, productivity, if you could just get people to sleep better, many people to sleep a bit better, then you'd already be making big contributions. Absolutely. Just installing some blackout curtains yeah. in every building right. would, and we need, <laughs> would get you there. And we need to talk to the scientists about, okay, and that's not just in terms of the people who are designing the places where you sleep. It's also the people designing the offices to make sure you get sufficient daylight and sufficient ventilation. Right. I mean, I'm not a sleep researcher, so I don't know what those things are that we would do. But I can guarantee you, if you got a bunch of sleep researchers and said, okay, tell me how to yeah. make people sleep better, they would give you a big list of things that architects could then do to their buildings and make them better. Right. But that's and only going to happen if you're oriented towards that perspective. Right. And I mean, I think the joke is today on modern architecture, that it feels that every building is trying to be this, you know, unique expression of right. the artist behind right. the project and doesn't really have in mind the customer who actually right. built the home, right. for it's instance. It's a vanity. It's a vanity project by the architect often, or the company. Right. So a way to evolve this field would definitely be to go down the route of you're providing some sort of service at the end of the day. Right. You're providing a home, an office, whatever it is, you're providing the space and, and humans inhabit that space. Do you, have you read um, Alanda Bouton's book, The Architecture of Happiness? I've saw the TV series associated with oh, it. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know there was a TV series. No, but he's, he's fantastic. I included a quote here of his. We depend on our surroundings obliquely to embody the moods and ideas we respect and then to remind us of them. We look to our buildings to hold us like a kind of psychological mold to a helpful vision of ourselves. We arrange around us material forms which communicate to us what we need, but are at constant risk of forgetting what we need within. We turn to wallpaper, benches, paintings, and streets to staunch the disappearance of our true selves. And I wonder what you think about this quote, because I found that it captures not only the importance of architecture on our moods, but also highlights what you found in your research on how we transform the spaces around us to reflect back to us exactly those reminders that we need, whether it be through social snacks or having a philosophy book in a kind of shrine-like position on the bookcase. Yeah, I think, and it relates back to what I was talking about earlier in terms of personality is conceived of at the level of identity. You right. know, so it's very much about 
sure, maintaining your everyday needs and sort of the mechanics of that, but also in capturing who you are as a person, your values, you know, your... That's what we find when we look at spaces is that, you know, people use them to facilitate their ordinary behaviors. That's one thing that they use them to kind of regulate their daily emotions and feelings. And then they also use them to project their identity to the self and to others. And I think, you know, all of those features are are captured in that quote. Right. So there's two elements that I'm seeing in this concept of architecture in terms of how it affects our personality. One is the design of the layout, the structure itself, how the space is divided. And on the other hand, we have beauty, art, aesthetics. Uh, Does the space appeal to me? And so obviously both elements are important, but I wonder, what do you think, what is the role of each one of these elements in affecting how we experience the space? I think the second element, the beauty element, is one that is drawing on something that is just less easy to articulate. Mm -hmm. It's almost certainly drawing on something that is systematic and can be understood. I mean, you know, I was very influenced by this work from the 1970s on what's called a prospect and refuge theory, which is the idea that many of our architectural preferences are essentially evolutionary vestiges of the things that were useful to us. And the way you can think about it is like, if you think of a reed warbler, a bird that lives Mm -hmm. in the reeds, right? Now, what does that reed warbler need to do in order to be have a successful nest? Well, it needs to find a nest that is in the reeds and it needs to be high enough above the water so that when the water level rises, it doesn't flood. It needs to be low enough in the reeds so that it isn't subject to predation by birds from above. It needs to have a certain shape so that the eggs don't roll out and that the bird and the chicks are protected. It needs to have a certain thickness to have good thermal properties. It needs to, there's all kinds of things that it needs to have to be a successful. But is the reed warbler thinking, oh, I need to build my nest a little lower because of all the eagles or whatever it is that eats the reed warbler, you know, or I need to be, look at the water level. It doesn't feel, it's what happens is that those reed warblers who happened to, have like building them at that height passed on more genes. Right. And humans are no different. And so, you know, prospect and refuge theory says that our current architectural preferences come from a very similar process. So what is it that we as humans needed 100,000 years ago? Well, we wanted to be, because we have eyes in the front of our head and we see well in daylight, we want to kind of be protected from behind. And we also need to be high. That allows us to see dangers coming to us and protect ourselves from those dangers. And it also allows us to have the prospects of animals we can hunt or trees that might be good. So that's good to be high and protected from behind. And we also need to be near the sorts of game that we hunt. So it'd be good if there is some game around, whatever those are, but we need to be able to see those. It shouldn't be too, the tree coverage shouldn't be too thick. But again, we don't want a desert. We want areas which can allow some shade for us and for the animals and those sorts of things. And of course, we need water. We have to be near water. So like, what does that sound like? I mean, that sounds like the sorts of places that people build 
when they have the means to do so. Look at the classic English country houses. What are they? They're always at the top of a sweeping kind of hill. Mm-hmm. And they will often be scattered trees around. They'll often have their own tame herd of deer. And always there's water there. There's a lake at the bottom. There's a river at the bottom or something like this. And when we stop and say, when is it that we stop and say, oh, this is beautiful? Well, it's probably we have, it's our evolved tendency to get pleasure from being in the sorts of space that formerly was incredibly adaptive for us. And so I think that when you're talking about these sorts of beauty judgments that people make in these spaces, we're probably not aware of what those things are, but it's sort of tapping into those. Absolutely. No, there's this instinct almost where we respond to something in the environment where it looks beautiful to us because it, by design, helps us to survive. In in the same way that we find certain people more beautiful or more attractive based on all of these cues that we're not even aware of, uh, like facial symmetry, for instance, which uh, is a cue for health and uh, all sorts of things like that. So in the same way, you're saying that kind of picturesque moment, there's something that just seems very right about it. Right. And of course, that's not all there is to it. That is overlaid by cultural norms about the ways of doing these things. So that is the English country house, but there would be, you know, other ways those basic things would be expressed. You know, Steve Palmer at UC Berkeley who had done a lot of fascinating research on color preferences and says, you know, well, mm. we tend to, as humans, we tend to have preferences like colors that signal things that are good for us, like ripeness in food. And we tend to not like things that signal things that are bad for us, like vomit and feces. We don't like those colors on average, but that's not the whole story. That can be overlaid with cultural things. So he's at UC Berkeley. So he found a weird thing. He found, look, he didn't find this. Usually people don't like yellow so much, but uh, he found his students did it. But then he realized, oh, the Berkeley students do because it's it's blue and gold. Yeah, 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 (laughs) blue and gold. And so it's, you know, it's not just a simple story of it just being this basic biological preference. It's a biological preference which is overlaid with the sort of cultural language. Right, right. We come with this kind of built-in hardware, but the software is then downloaded onto it in terms of cultural elements. So to bring these ideas kind of into more concrete examples, In terms of designing an office, for instance, well, I think we have all reached a consensus that cubicles are are not good for anybody. But in terms of, for instance, the open space design that's uh, you know been all the rage in the last couple of years, how is that for productivity? Well, the first thing I should say is I don't know because I haven't studied it. But, But I do have some thoughts about it. But I want to be clear, this is not research findings, right? But what we have learned from our research is that, first of all, different people like different spaces. So just assigning somebody to a certain space in a certain office may be discordant from the sorts of space that they enjoy. So when we found, for example, that you know disagreeable people tend to be further away from the center of an office space. And I don't know if it's they choose to be further away or they get pushed, you know, out. get pushed out. I'm not sure how, what the process is. But anyway, so even the location within the space is important. The other thing that we found is that people really f- 
find it useful to express themselves, who they are. You know, and this builds on some of the work that um, Bill Swan and others have done on self-verification theory, which is the idea that we are happier, healthier, and more productive when others see us as we see ourselves. Because when I think you get me, then it makes our future interactions more predictable and understandable and just things are, they go better. When, right. when things I feel flow better. They flow better. That's what we're happening. Yeah, they flow better when that's happening. So I think the spaces and people use their spaces in order to help others get them. I mean, we see these people wear things on their T-shirts and their bumper stickers and their cars and the, and the signatures below their emails. I mean, people are constantly looking at ways to say, hey, this is who I am. So spaces that don't permit people to do that, I think, are likely not to be so good. And other things we know, I mean, it's, it's true of cubicles, but it's also true of the, some places in the open plan, which is, where are you looking? Like in the open plan, we have offices like looking at each other, you know, in staring at each other and looking at each other can be very threatening to people or dis- at least disruptive. We're used to taking people's faces as an important social cue. So when there's somebody's face there the whole time, it may be distracting. And if there are people behind us, that's probably disconcerting. If you go to a cafe, and and we've done this in some of our research, if you go to a cafe, we could all go into a cafe that we'd never been to before and say, okay, where will, which chairs will be filled first? And we will all point to the same chairs. It will be the ones with their backs to the wall where you can see the action, you can probably see the door, you can probably maybe see the counter as well. And there'll be certain places that just are more comfortable because we don't like individuals behind us. And so one of the problems with some of the open plan is there are constantly people moving. Even if we're not consciously aware of it, having people behind us is not a good feeling. Right. And right. so that could create sort of these sort of low levels of anxiety. You know, and that's because of the type of creature we are. If we were building a cafe for antelope, like antelope don't go to cafes, but if antelope <laughs> did go to cafes and we asked the antelope, where will all the antelope go first? They would point to the seats right in the middle of the cafe where you could see dangers coming because they are a different type of creature. So I think this sort of this behavioral and psychological perspective can inform our understanding of of these kinds of spaces. So continuing with this theme of looking at psychology through pure behavioral data, you and your colleagues are exploring a new direction for assessing personality now in terms of looking at people's smartphone data and analyzing this to try to gauge their personality. And so this is quite a loaded topic because as soon as we talk about tracking people's smartphone data, I'm sure a few people listening will automatically have a bit of a heart attack. So putting that aside for a moment, we can return to it. In terms of pure intellectual and scientific indulgence here, how fun is it to have all of this data at your fingertips and to use all of these metrics to understand people's personality? Well, it's a lot of fun, but it's also a huge challenge in terms of trying to handle these data because these are the types and quantities of data that psychologists are not equipped to understand and deal with. So, you know, essentially most of the people working in this field become or learn a lot of sort of data science techniques because you're just handling these huge quantities. But the whole utility of it goes back to this issue I was talking about, about 
earlier about saying psychology has not been a behavioral science. And many people for years and years have been saying we should study behavior, but there hasn't really been a way of doing it. The way I think about it is I think like if a magic genie showed up to a bunch of psychologists and said, okay, psychologists, I can make you any assessment tool you like, what would it do? We say, okay, well, what we'd like is we'd like some device that people kept with them all the time. In fact, they kept from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, and in fact, probably have it there even when they're asleep too. And that this device already has on it sensors that can detect location. They can detect movement. They can detect light. They have cameras on. They have microphones on. Not only that, they have computers attached to them. (laughs) And they mediate all kinds of other behaviors, from communication behaviors to all the sorts of behaviors one might do, searching behaviors, exercising, all kinds of game playing, all kinds of purchasing behaviors. And not only that, they also have the capability to ask individuals questions. So you can probe people to ask, are you stressed? Are you sad? Are you happy as well at the same time? And not only that, you have the capability of in real time computing things and giving people various sorts of feedback to do interventions. That's what psychologists would say (laughs) if they had a genie. But we don't need a genie. The smartphone is our dream device. Now, of course, there are incredible dangers with so much information, but the information itself isn't intrinsically dangerous. If we really want to be able to predict with better accuracy when people are going to have a schizophrenic episode or are likely to be falling into a depressive episode or are likely to engage in some behavior that they don't want to behave in, like smoking or drinking or who knows what, then we need the behavioral data to be able to do that. Right now, if you're working with a therapist to try to stop you smoking, you know, you'll sit with a therapist and they will talk with you about when you smoke and they'll say, okay, well, next time you're at a bar and doing this and drinking, remember not to smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. That's cute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But a phone knows that you are at a bar right now and it knows that you are drinking and it, and it can give you, remind you in, in that moment. Right, in real time. Yeah, and it can be a different thing for you than it is for somebody else because you have different triggers and different patterns and different associations. So there are dangers, but again, just because there are bad things, that doesn't mean we should shrug our shoulders and walk away. It just means we have to be careful. Absolutely. No, there's so much rich information here. And there's so many things that this kind of research can help with really to improve our lives and to optimize our day-to-day behaviors and things like that. So definitely the dangers shouldn't deter us from exploring this. Now, just to give a little bit of context, what kind of metrics were you guys looking at? And kind of metrics have you already found do kind of reflect different personality traits? Yeah. Well, well, I should say we're at the very early stages of this field because we're still figuring out how, if we are, for example, getting uh, snippets of conversation, or even if it's not conversation, we could classify, is this person talking? You know, the question, it involves so much... <laughs> 
highly complex analysis that it's quite hard to do. But we are, for example, at this stage, I would say we're sort of validating the instruments. So we have been able to find, for example, that the as you would expect, so this is not a big surprise, but you know, that you can predict extroversion from various communicating behaviors, from you know, right. texting, talking, and being in the vicinity of, a, of others. So I wouldn't say that what we have found is sort of groundbreaking in its sort of substantive finding, but it's very important in showing that this method is viable and has tremendous potential. Right. And just kind of clearing up the data and making sense of what to look for in the future. Right. Like, you know, you have the microphone, which might be using some voice classifier saying, is there voice there? Well, is that a voice from a conversation or is that a voice from the TV? And if there's not, you know, if somebody's communicating by typing, how does that detect whether you're actually typing? One of the ways some researchers have looked at how much people are with others versus not is looking at Bluetooth devices nearby. Hmm. But sometimes that they might be near a printer, which has a Bluetooth right. device or a speaker, speaker or, or, or whatever it is. Like that, yeah. So a lot of it is working out the nitty gritty. But this work is destined to transform the field of psychology. And if it doesn't transform the field of psychology, psychologists should give up and go home because this <laughs> is this is really the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail, yeah, in terms of understanding behavior. In terms of where you would like to see this research go, what do you think one of the real benefits of it could be? Well, finally, it's really linking, is making the behavioral sciences behavioral. It's interesting to learn about people's self-conceptions as an interesting topic, but it's not necessarily telling us much about what's really happening. So I think another, you know, and another important element of this, especially sort of the smartphone research, is that it can really scale. So it's very hard for me to reach, in old-fashioned ways, you know, reach many people all over the world. But so many people now have smartphones, and it doesn't take more than linking, sending somebody a link so they can download the app onto their phone and it can collect the information, you know, and you can go through all the safeguards and so on. So it really allows us to fill in the details. So, for example, you know, we've done a little bit of research on what are the things that help people learn. So in our classes, you know, what are the factors that contribute to people improving in their studies? And we have these ideas, we can measure them in this class and in the next class, we can ask some questions, but we don't really know, we can't fill in the details of mechanically what is the person who is beginning to thrive doing differently from the person who isn't? Where are they speaking more? Are they traveling more? Are they going to certain places? Are they entering? This essentially allows us to fill in these gaps from these kind of very kind of occasional assessments we have done up till now. Right. And the data is all there. It's right. just a matter of tracking it and making sense of it. At making this point. sense of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So kind of circling back to where we started with personality, because I know that if I don't ask this, then people will get upset with me because this is a question that comes up a lot. Do you think that personality is constant or do you think personality is something that changes? Uh, well, uh, all the evidence suggests that it changes, but it tends to change slowly on average. And there are some things that change for all people. So, for example, as our brain develops, virtually everybody gets more conscientious as they get 
move through their teenage years to their 20s and 30s and so on. And most people become less anxious as they get older until you get to really old age when you start to experience more health issues and so on. So the research points clearly to the fact that it does change, but there are also, you know, additional changes too. So personality can change in contexts like therapy. I mean, that's presumably why many people go to therapy. They go to therapy in order to kind of implement some kind of personality change. I see. And so this kind of, you know, starting point of your personality and then the changes that happen on top of that, I wonder if those changes, how big could they actually be? Yeah. I mean, I think there's change, but there's change within limits. The good example, I think, is extroversion. The way I think about it is kind of your biology kind of places you sort of somewhere on a scale and with a certain amount of wiggle room around that. So if you're biologically very introverted, if there's a 10-point scale, you might say, okay, your biology puts you at a two, but there might be enough wiggle room with concerted effort and various other things to get up to a four. Right, you know, but you're not going to be the most extroverted no. person in the room. And you know, and you see this, like I think you know, extroversion is a good example. Like you, the way I think about extroversion is, you know, when you go to a party, how do you feel? Extrovert comes out of a party ready to go. Their batteries are charged. That was a great party. All those people. Where is the next party? Let's go. <laughs> Whereas the introverts come out from a party exhausted. I don't want to see people they don't want, for they 10 go days hide. now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll go, they'll make an excuse. They'll, they'll go and hide, you know, hide in the toilet for a while just to kind of get over all of that stimulation. And I think many introverts learn because in many cases it's adaptive to be extroverted in many sort of social and professional context, extroversion is good. So many introverts can learn to kind of behave like an extrovert. But I don't think an introvert will ever truly feel that way of that excitement, batteries charged feeling after a party in the way that an extrovert does. Right. They're not wired in the same way. So there's a cost and energy cost to that kind of interaction. Wonderful. Sam, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I think the work you've done is really unique. And I'm really excited to see how your current research progresses. Not all. Thanks a lot for chatting with me. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. And thank you for listening. Till next time.